coming up on Pass the Secret Sauce. And then I had this idea because I joined the board of a small college where my mom had taught for years, Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas, little teeny college. And I was flying out to a board meeting and I thought we have the same problem Yale Law School had. Mm -hmm. Totally different school with totally different student profile, but we admit all these students. We spend all this marketing and effort. We recruit the students. They apply. We admit them. And then two months later, we send out financial aid awards and a huge number say, I can't afford it. I'm going somewhere cheaper. Mm -hmm. Even though they want to come there, we know they want to come. So I thought, why doesn't Central offer the same loan repayment assistance program that Yale does? Well, all kinds of reasons. Didn't have a big endowment, didn't have mm -hmm. the self-confidence, didn't have all the things necessary to put that together. And I thought, you know, we could build a business to do this. We could go find an insurance company to partner with. We can build mm -hmm. the actuarial model. We can provide this as a turnkey solution for, uh, you know, small colleges who want to use this. Okay. And that's really where our deal came from was the idea of the way to get this to students was to sell it to colleges as an enrollment tool so mm -hmm. they could grow their enrollments and then more students get to go to the college they want to go to. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Shields. On Pass the Secret Sauce, we unscramble the life stories, skills, and secrets from the most wicked smart minds and interesting people to uncover their experience and recipes for success that will help you get an edge on your own life. My goal is to help you rein in on the chaos that life throws at us by learning from other high achievers. If you're new to the show, we have episodes with founders, CEOs, investors, and leaders. So if you like to learn and are motivated to improve your life, then kick back and listen to our guests pass their secret sauce. Today on Pass the Secret Sauce, we have Peter Samuelson, who is the founder and president of Ardeo Education Solutions. So Peter has a eclectic background. He's been to law school and got to travel around the world. So we, we talk a little bit about his different experiences that he had in China and Sudan and some of the realizations and the, and the learnings that he pulled from those, those different experiences from those different countries. Uh, and then we bring that all back home where he's created a company that helps college-bound students pay for college. And we get into exactly how that works and that. And uh, his ultimate end client is colleges. So we talk about how he sells into colleges and you know just some of the trials and tri tribulations that he's been through when trying to launch his own business. And he's doing very, very well at this point. Uh, he's got about 50 employees, so the company is growing and they've got some big plans coming up, uh, which we, we talk about some of those things. But really interesting, you know, kind of different perspective. A lot of people focus on many, many different sort of broad types of industries. And as Peter mentioned, the college pool is really only a few thousand colleges in the U.S., so they've got a limited number of customers, but interesting, you know, focusing in on those customers and being able to serve them the best that you possibly can. So if you are in a similar situation where you're, again, you have a limited pool of, of companies or, or customers that you're looking at, some of the insights that Peter is providing to overcome some of those challenges were really, really insightful, really, really valuable, and of course, if you are working at a college or you are in in charge of admissions at any type of college, check out their company because this is something that I think a lot more students are going to want and expect moving into the future. So 
Uh, with that, I hope you enjoy today's episode of Pass the Secret Sauce with Peter Samuelson. Well, it was often just three kids and my mom because my dad traveled all the time. So he grew up traveling and I I travel myself a lot, probably comes from him. He was a pastor, a missionary, and he worked in plan giving after that for the church and for other nonprofits. So he was usually gone three days a week and then be there on the weekends. And dinner table was, uh, I remember we had uh, syrup suppers all the time. Mom would make French toast, pancakes, sausage, (laughs) eggs. I just, I still love that to this day. And I breakfast dinner. Yeah. Breakfast for dinner. I love that. That's great. That's great. I haven't done that in a while, actually. Might have to, might have to do that one of these next couple of days. So, so with your dad being a pastor, I mean, I, I, I kind of get the idea or I kind of get the thought process that that's sort of an entrepreneurial type position, right? I mean, he's, you know, sort of heading up this, you know, company, if you will, right? Is that what you... Well, it is, right? So most pastors are entrepreneurs. They run their own little business. It's essentially a franchise for a lot of pastors, right? Now, Mm -hmm. sometimes they get moved around by the church from place to place, but whether they stay or move depends on how they connect with the locals. And my dad, every time he had a church, he built a new building. He was really good at organizing the community to say, we're growing as a church. We need more space for the vision we have for the future and getting the leadership in the local church behind it, raising the money and doing uh, and building it. Yeah. So it was a really easy transition for him from doing that to then becoming a fundraiser for the church and doing planned giving. And then eventually he left that and went to Edward Jones as a stockbroker, a personal financial advisor for people. But all, through all of that, he was really advising people on how to make best use of their resources, right? Yeah. And doing it in a way as a small businessman, very independent on his own. So certainly I saw a lot of that as I was growing up. Yep. Yep. I think what I really take away from my dad is hard work. He just worked really hard all the time. So did my mom, right? They, like you said earlier, neither one had a silver spoon in their mouth. They got what they got by working hard, doing a good job, pleasing the people around them. Yeah. I think something else that was really important was service. My mom and dad, both through their entire life, working for the church, working for other nonprofits, were very committed to the view that life is all about helping other people. Mm-hmm. And so that was something that I think came through loud and clear from dinner table conversations, like you said, right? We were often talking about other people in the church. Mom would invite people over for Sunday lunch. Mom would invite people over for uh, holiday meals who didn't have a place to go. Mm-hmm. So that was always a big current to what was going on. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And and obviously all of that impacted you. When, when was the when was the first time would you say that you you know ventured out on your own? Were you were you the, well, I don't want to say ventured out on your own quite yet, but were you the kid that was you know selling candy or or you know things at school? Did you have that that type of inclination as a kid, or or did it not hit you until a little bit later on? No, nothing at all. Growing up, I was the bookworm, the good student, totally focused on doing what other people told me to do. Going through school, all the way through college and law school. In college, a friend and mine, uh, a friend Andy and I, we used to go out to lunch and breakfast sometimes together. And we came up with the red box idea. We were going to take DVDs, put them in mm-hmm. vending machines and put those all over the US. And we talked about that over and over again. We worked out kind of the whole business plan, never did anything with it. Right. But that yeah. was kind of the first time that I thought about trying something new as a business. Mm-hmm. But until then, I had always been just very focused on what's the next step on the plan ahead of me. Right. You I get a set of classes to do for the semester and I would do the classes and move on to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have any, looking back on that, you know, with the red box thing, do you have any inclination as to, you know, why you didn't move forward? Was it because maybe you weren't all that terribly interested in it? Was it, you know, lack of resources? Any, any thoughts as you're looking back on it now? You know, I'd say two things. One, 
absolutely no idea where to get the money or to get started, right? Like how to actually make it a business and go. And that's hard and tricky, right? It's not just the idea for the product. There's so much to make the business, which is separate from the product and really two smaller horizons. I just thought I would get a job like my dad working for some nonprofits, even though, as you pointed out, he was quite entrepreneurial. What yeah. I saw as a kid then was he worked for someone else, right? Right. And I didn't have any vision of working for myself. I had a vision of joining some nonprofit to do something good. It wasn't until I got to law school that I really had that kind of uh, eye-opening moment. I remember it really clearly. I came back to the dorm one day, and what we were talking about what we were going to do for the summer, the first year after law school. Mm-hmm. And in the second year after law school, it's easy to get jobs at big law firms. But in the first year, it was a little harder. So we were all trying sure. to figure out what we were going to do. And one of the guys came into the room, and he said, you know, I want to go to South Africa and work with the Supreme Court. So I wrote a letter to the Chief Justice of the South African Supreme Court and asked if I could come for the summer and work for him. And he said yes. And I remember that just blew my mind, right? Like that was so outside the box, outside all the boundaries. I'd been looking at little law firms I could go work for, you know, some nonprofit with legal issues. And that really just broadened the horizons. And after that, it was much easier to start think about something like starting a business, right? Mm-hmm. Which I had never thought about before. Yeah. And and so did you start anything during your summers, you know, on, on your own? Or was it after you graduated with law school that you finally, you know, jumped into, you know, your own, your own things? The most entrepreneurial thing I did in law school was I decided I want to go to China. So I was born in China. Uh, I was born in Taiwan. Oh, really? As a missionary kid. And I wanted to go back because we moved out when we left when I was two or three. And so I wanted to go back and see China that my mom talked about all the time because she grew up there and we have Chinese stuff all over the house, right? So even though I was only there for a couple of years, it had an outsized impact on kind of my imagination and Mm -hmm. how I thought about our family and my own upbringing. And so I wanted to go back. So I started telling law firms, I mean, I want to go back to China. Can you help me? And can I take a year off before I join you? And over and over again, they just laughed at me. I mean, they literally laughed at me, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. One of them, I remember, said, this isn't the 80s anymore, kid. You can't do that, right? <laughs> you, you don't tell us what's going to happen. We tell you what's going to happen. Yeah. So that was funny. So I finally found a law firm that got behind me, really excited about it. Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed, they were really good about it. They said, hey, we have uh, other law firms. We work in Hong, Hong Kong. We'll set you up in Hong Kong with a job there for some time. Mm-hmm. So I went to Lovell's, a British firm over in Hong Kong that they connected me with. Had a great time. I did human rights work in Sudan. I did human rights work in China and put together a full year where I was traveling around the world, doing good stuff, having some good experiences and just had a blast. Yeah. So that was uh, in a sense entrepreneurial in the sense that I just decided to create my own script and not do what the normal script was of go right from law school into the job and start paying off the debts. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I And I love that. I'm a huge fan of China myself. I've been there a couple of times and you know, Hong Kong's cool, but it's, you know, basically just, uh, you know, uh, a, a Western, uh, you know, New York, if you will, but, but mainland China is the people, the culture, just absolutely incredible. Amazing, amazing, amazing times there. Well, I agree. And the, uh, I got a chance to travel. I was working with this nonprofit that was going into China. So I would go in for three, four days at a time to uh, probably went to a dozen different cities in China, yeah. a lot of them on the East coast, which are more built up, but some of them further inland, which was just really cool. Like you said, to see all the different people and to see it up close in person, right? Not just on yeah. a documentary on TV. And that's, there is, I think there's three, yeah, three Anglo-Saxons basically that, you know, we all went over there on a, uh, on a trip to, to visit a bunch of our vendors together. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I mean, we we left there just in awe of the amount of service and the amount of care that they, you know, take with us, with everyone around them. I mean, it didn't matter where yeah. you were. I mean, we stayed in some, you know, amazing hotels. We, we stayed at a Four Seasons in, I think that was in Shen, Shenzhen. No. But anyway, it didn't matter if you're in, you know, a, a five-star hotel or a little corner, you know, you know, breakfast place. I mean, the, the service that you got was impeccable. And we were, we were thinking like, man, I, I don't want to go back to the U.S. and get this, you know, the same <laughs> shitty service that we're used to, you know, but it's just really, really amazing people, amazing culture. So, yeah, highly, highly recommend getting to, to China if, uh, if any of the listeners ever have the chance. So I think travel of any kind overseas is just so great because I talked to so many friends who have never been outside the U.S. Yeah. And I don't think you have a proper understanding of how. How, how lucky we are to be Americans if you haven't traveled overseas and seen what daily life is like for most people, especially yeah. countries that aren't first world countries. It's uh, yeah. uh, we have uh, so many blessings that we are, it's easy to take it, take for granted. Yeah. I mean, and you've had a hell of a lot more experience than I have you know, with all of that, you know, with your, your workings in Sudan and you know, places like that. I, I, I you know, I, I'd love to be able to go there. I couldn't imagine what, what life is like there, but uh, yeah, incredible. Well, it's crazy, right? So we went from Sudan, not a place you'd ever want to live. And then we went to Kenya for a couple of weeks to talk to uh, refugees there in the refugee camps. And one of my most vivid memories in a refugee camp is, it was just so hot and dry. I was completely dehydrated, right? After a couple hours there in the baking sun and they had, you know, little huts and whatnot. But we were taken to this little hut, a one room hut that had maybe 30 people in it. And they were watching a TV just a little teeny TV that they could all kind of barely see. Yeah. And it was showing some Spanish language Dallas type show with, you know, from the eighties or maybe late seventies women with really big hair and, you know, mm-hmm. really austatious, uh, conspicuous consumption. And you could tell that they couldn't relate to almost any of it. Right. Yeah. Big language barrier. And the lifestyle was so different that they, they were interested, but they couldn't even comprehend it. Until at one point, this fancy car drives up the driveway to the mansion, and it's a circular driveway. In the middle of the driveway is a water fountain, just gushing water. And when that hit the screen, the entire room said, oh, look at that water, right? That they could relate to. Endless free water that you could just use. Yeah, That was amazing. And we just take that totally for granted, right? We have water at the tap anytime we want it, that we can drink, use anytime we want, in any amount we want without worrying about it. You know, we, you reminded me of something too. One of the things that we realized was the people that, that we were meeting in, in China, you know, they, their experience of the U.S. is, you know, same type of thing is, is through the TV, through, through yeah. shows and all that. And one guy that I was talking to was, was basically, I believe it was Friends, if I remember correctly, the show Friends. He, he thought like he was making references to like things that were in Friends. And that's what he like identified the U.S. as right. is, you know, what, what's going on in these different TV shows, which is, you know, I, I guess that's the only inspiration or, or exposure that they have to our culture, because obviously right. the internet is, is, you know, regulated and they can only see certain things there and that. So just right. really, really interesting the way that they, you know, thought that life is here. So. And I'm sure the internet is changing that dramatically, even though it's regulated, but before the internet, they had almost nothing at all, yeah. right? A few, a few TV shows was all they had. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so what happened next for you? You, you, so you traveled around or to these different areas and that, and you're doing your nonprofit work. What, what was your next move? What was, uh, what was the next point sure. in your so career path? I came back to Wall Street, uh, back to New York City, and went for a 
went to work for a law firm on Wall Street, Hughes, Hubbard and Reed. Spent two years there, not quite two years there. Learned a ton, but did not enjoy being a lawyer. And I never could see myself as a partner in the law firm. I don't know why, just didn't quite match up right. Uh, now I could see myself in a partner at a law firm like that, but back then I couldn't envision it at all, right? And so left there and went to McKinsey and Company as a consultant. A friend from law school had uh, left his law firm and gone there first, and he was telling me about it. And I thought that sounds really interesting, working with big businesses to help solve their hardest problems. Mm-hmm. Virtus Technology is a custom business software solution provider. Are you tired of manual entry into an old system that creates more work than it helps? Does your company suffer from constant pain and frustration around its business processes? Do you spend a lot of time and money trying to hunt information down or figure out what is happening in your business? Virtus Technology can help solve all of this. We evaluate your current processes and then create custom software or mobile apps to automate and streamline your business process, eliminating a lot of those pains and frustrations. Unlike other systems, our goal is to digitize your current processes and systems so that your staff's learning curve is very small. If you're ready to take your business operations to the next level, give Virtus Technology a call today. And I had a great time at McKinsey. Really loved it. Spent two years in the New York office and then transferred out to the San Francisco office right during the dot-com boom, which was just fantastic. Yeah. So I had a great time there. You know, I remember with friends in San Francisco during the dot-com boom, we would all the time talk about some business idea, you know, because the internet just spawned so many types Mm -hmm. of businesses, all kind of the same internet-based model. And by the end of lunch, one of us would Google it and it already existed, right? It was so hard to get ahead of the curve. Yeah, yeah. And at that time, I wrote my first business plan. I remember buying a couple of books about how do you write a business plan? Because I had this idea to put AP advanced placement courses online mm-hmm. and make them available to students at high schools throughout the country where they weren't, weren't available. Because back then there's really limited uh, possibilities. And I took a run at it. I tried to raise money to get it started, but I, I really even then had no idea how to get that moving. And what is really funny is a year later, Paul Allen funded a company that did exactly that as if he had found my business plan somewhere and maybe it leaked out, who knows, right? Uh, (laughs) But that was the first time I really took a run at something and tried to make it happen and discovered how little I knew about making a business work separate from kind of the strategic planning ideas of the bigger vision, right? Yeah, yeah. So then it was a, you know, a few more years passed. I left McKinsey and Company and I ended up running a small nonprofit. And that was actually great. We had about 15 people and I learned all about business at the really detailed level, right? Because McKinsey solves really big business problems for really big businesses. And the scale there is just totally different. And running this little nonprofit, we had a great time. We had a good national profile, but we had to, I had to take care of everything, right? What's the marketing plan? Who are we hiring? How do we do performance reviews? What's the budget? And the budget was horrible. And how do we raise money? Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. And that really gave me confidence I could do it myself. So a few years later is when I started Ardeo. Yeah. Interesting. So, so you created the business, you, you created that first business plan. You didn't really have, you know, that, the, the skill sets to be able to you know, implement that and take that to the next level. You, you kind of threw a few of them out. What would you say the biggest, the most impactful skill sets that you would have needed to be able to take that from your business plan, your idea to actually launching it? What, what would some of those things that, you know, sort of just come to mind be? Well, so when you say that, the first thing that comes to mind is a, a stubbornness to not listen to people when they tell you it won't work. 
because so many people just, they don't get it. They don't see the vision you have. And they tell you no for a thousand really good reasons. Yeah. And they have your best interest at heart. And if you listen to them, you just don't go, right? And so when I finally launched Ardeo, I had just uh, gone through a divorce and I was between jobs and I was trying to decide what to do next with my life. And the really funny thing is I had these boxes in my garage from having thought about the idea for a while. And I decided I'm gonna clean out the paper and throw it away. And that gave me an excuse to spend a couple of weeks not looking for a job. Yeah. And at the end of the couple of weeks, I thought, I have something here, I should go chase this. And I still didn't want to go work for someone else, right? I was at a point in my life where I really didn't want to work for someone else. So you're asking what are the skills that are, it takes? You know, there's some sort of mental toughness, stubbornness, and a really high desire to do it yourself and make it work. Mm -hmm. um, and apart from that, you know, the other, the other real skills were enough gravitas, enough, uh, enough, a big enough network that when you reach out looking for help in different ways that your network is big enough to find it. Certainly, you know, a comfort with financial statements helps and some knowledge about how to raise money helps and some sense of marketing and how to do, you know, how to build processes that are efficient and repeatable, you know, basic computer skills, because you'll be your own IT person for a while. Yep. And, and no one has all of that, right? So you get some piece of that in yourself, and then you have to go find a partner who uh, brings more of it to the table so that together you can get enough of it ready to get uh, kind of critical mass and get going. Yeah, yeah, no, that's I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, you 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 touched on something there too, where there's always people that are going to say, "No, you can't do that. You can't do that." And and what I've noticed over the years is you only really want to listen to the people that have what you want to do, like you know that they've gone through and stepped through the path that you yeah. you know that you've done. Because you know, again, everyone, like you said, is going to to tell you no. But if they are working for someone else, obviously they haven't done what you've done. You know, they right. haven't. You know, and, and you have to just sort of, no matter who that is, you have to be able to, you know, sort of brush them off and not pay attention to whatever that is. But if somebody who actually is sitting in the place where you truly want to be, and I mean, being very, very specific, you know, where, where you want to be, then that's a person that you should be listening to, right? right. You know, that's, you know, somebody who has that experience. I've, I've talked to a couple of people that are interested in, you know, buying larger apartment buildings, but they're taking advice from people that are only buying houses. So you're on the right path, but you're not going to be able to, you know, achieve this by taking, you know, this advice here. So again, you need to Absolutely. find the mentors and the, the people that, you know, can help you get to where you actually you know, want to go. So, and I think a piece of that is so often from a starting a business or running a business perspective, I think the best advice comes from my friends who are presidents or CEOs and run something mm -hmm. because so often someone who is a VP of marketing or a VP of finance or a VP of one function, one department, it's hard for them sometimes to give you an answer that encompasses the entire business. Yeah. And someone who has been a general manager, a CEO, they are, I find them much, they much more quickly get to the essence of the problem and where it fits into the other problems. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So, so talk a little bit about what you do. Like, you know, you've obviously you have a passion for continuing education and and furthering you know people's uh, education. Why don't you talk a little bit about what got you into the business you know that you're in today, and then talk a little bit about what that business does. Sure. So first off, uh, at our Dale, we help students go to college, and we overcome the fear of debt, and that all comes really out of my personal experience. So when I got ready to go to college, I went to Greenville College, now Greenville University, a small school down in Southern Illinois, and I wanted to go to Wheaton College. 
Uh, Wheaton's got a great reputation. I was a missionary kid and Wheaton's got a real missionary history. A lot of missionaries have gone there, have come out of there. And a very classic case that they admitted me and then I got the financial aid award and I couldn't afford it, right? And so often when someone says, I can't afford this college, that college, they mean, I don't wanna borrow that much money. And the challenge was Greenville was offering me almost a free ride because my mom taught at a sister school. So I had a big tuition discount built in there. And it was really hard to take out all this debt to go to Wheaton when I could go to Greenville so much cheaper. So I went to Greenville, had a good experience there, but didn't go to my first choice college, right? So I move on from that. And as I got ready to go to law school, almost encountered the same thing again. I wanted to go to Yale Law School, but Chicago offered me a lot more money. So I thought, man, I really have to go to University of Chicago because if I go to Yale, I'm going to have so much more student loans. Yeah. And then I discovered Yale had this program they had just launched a year or two before called the Career Options Assistance Program. And now most law schools have them and they generically call them loan repayment assistance programs. And what these loan repayment assistance programs do is they promise, come here, borrow the money. It's a good investment. When you graduate, if your income is low, we'll help you make your loan payments. Now, Yale's was unique. They were one of the first ones and theirs was wide open. They didn't care what you did. Almost all the other law schools say you have to do public interest law as we define public interest uh, law. And while that may change what you do as a career, it may not change where you go to school because you may not be sure what you want to do. But Yale's promise was great. I could go to Africa and do any sort of nonprofit work, your relief work. I could stay in the U.S. I could go to a big law firm. I could go to a small law firm. I didn't have to worry about the salary on the back end, right? Yeah. And Yale was very explicitly using that as a recruiting tool to get more students, better students. They had discovered they were losing students from the Midwest, from flyover country, right? Because on the East and West Coast, salaries were higher. People were more willing to borrow more. But yeah. if you came to a small town in the Midwest and wanted to go back home and work in your dad's law firm, it didn't work, right? Yeah. If you wanted to go to the public defender's office, it didn't work either because they didn't pay enough. So Steve Yandel at Yale had put this program together and it was just a great program. So I went to Yale Law School, had a great experience. This allowed me to travel the world for the year afterwards doing public interest work because I couldn't have done that with my debt payments, my loan mm -hmm. payments. And then came back to uh, Wall Street and went to a big law firm, paid off my loans, went to McKinsey, finished paying off the loans. And then I had this idea because I joined the board of a small college where my mom had taught for years. Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas, little teeny college. And I was flying out to a board meeting and I thought we have the same problem Yale Law School had. Mm -hmm. Totally different school with totally different student profile, but we admit all these students. We spend all this marketing and effort. We recruit the students, they apply, we admit them. And then two months later, we send out financial aid awards and a huge number say, I can't afford it. I'm going somewhere cheaper. Mm -hmm. Even though they want to come there, we know they want to come. So I thought, why doesn't Central offer the same loan repayment assistance program that Yale does? Well, all kinds of reasons. Didn't have a big endowment, didn't have mm -hmm. the self-confidence, didn't have all the things necessary to put that together. And I thought, you know, we could build a business to do this. We could go find an insurance company to partner with. We can build mm -hmm. the actuarial model. We can provide this as a turnkey solution for, uh, you know, small colleges who want to use this. Okay. And that's really where our deal came from was, the idea of the way to get this to students was to sell it to colleges as an enrollment tool so mm -hmm. they could grow their enrollments and then more students get to go to the college they want to go to. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So you kind of, you know, out of your own experiences and all of that, you, you more or less created sort of an arbitrage, I guess you could say, where, you know, you're, you're connecting the, the insurance providers or insurance companies with, 
you know, with the different connect or with the different colleges. So that, that's absolutely. Really and, you know, a student going to college has a problem they can't solve if they're afraid of debt. They can't yeah. diversify that risk. Right. They're going to borrow 40, 50, 60 thousand dollars. And their risk that they have a bad financial outcome because they can't get a good job or it limits them from taking the job they want to take. There's no way for them to diversify that. We can diversify that with our insurance partner, right? Because we're working with lots of students. Yeah. Most of them get a good outcome. Most of them graduate, get a good job. But there's always that bottom 20% who either want to do nonprofit work, you know, the small percentage, or yeah. struggle to find a good job, the bigger percentage. Yep, yep. And, and, and help them out. So, so what, what are some of the... I guess obviously your 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 customer, the people that you're going after are are the colleges, correct? So correct. so so what would be some of the what are some of the the common you know kickbacks or reasons that that the colleges give you for not wanting to go down that down that path? Is there are there some misunderstandings or anything that you commonly hear? All kinds of them, right? So uh, you know the most common is I've never heard of that, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about a vice president enrollment. They have a whole plan for how they're going to meet their enrollment target. And the plan involves buying a bunch of names from the companies that sell names, doing marketing, using vendors that do X, Y, Z, using their team. I'm not in their plan because they've never heard of this. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we have to do is persuade them to change their budget and change their plan to incorporate this new idea. Now, we've got some great results at a bunch of colleges. We've worked with over 200 colleges with over 30,000 students. So it definitely works and can really impact what they get in their enrollment results. But the biggest challenge is I've never heard of that and I don't have time to think about it, right? Yeah. So, but anyone who's rolling out a new product has to create the market. So we, we work on that, right? We go through referrals, we talk to friends of friends, we go to conferences. The next biggest objection is the CFO says, I've never heard of that. I don't want to put that in the budget. Yeah. And, you know, at a college, the CFO has a risk management role. And sometimes they're afraid that, you know, I haven't heard of this. This could blow up in funny ways, right? So we work with a very well-regarded insurance partner. They're A-plus rated, and we can answer all those questions, but they have to give us the chance to answer those questions, right? Yeah, so some yeah. silent without giving us a chance to actually answer the concerns they have. And then increasingly at colleges, the VP of enrollment's on a hot seat, and they turn over every three or four years. And when one of them turns over, we start over, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfectly reasonable reasons for colleges to say no, but we do run into that a lot. The colleges then put us in touch with families and families love this, right? But but students and parents all the time say, this just sounds too good to be true. What's the catch, right? So we run into that a lot and we have to overcome that, uh, answer that question well as well. Yeah. And then from the college's perspective, once they start offering this as a program, I imagine that it's lucrative or, or, you know, they see a, a good result from it because again, people, you know, this is another, another reason to go to this school as opposed to the other school, correct? Well, it is. And most of the colleges who use us do see a good result there. Now, they do find it's expensive. You know, one of the things that Stephen Yandel did, Stephen Yandel is the one who started this at Yale Law School, and he's chairman of our advisory board. And we've really copied not just how we put it together, but his mental model on it. And when he was at Yale Law School, he wanted this to really empower students to go do the public defender's office, right? So if the program provides real substantial assistance for graduates, then it will really change where they go to school. Yeah. If you make the benefits so limited that it's just kind of vaporware, then you're not going to change the enrollment decisions up front. But if you want to provide real and substantial help to 10 or 20 or 25% of graduates, that costs money, right? So the program is a little expensive uh, from the view of most colleges. That's an objection we get. We see that they get a really good financial return on that investment. Yeah. But some of them think we can get more students with cheaper options. And that, that's certainly something that we run into. 
Yep. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and, you know, just like we mentioned before, you know, you want to find the person who's done whatever you want to do and is sitting in the seat where you want to go. Well, right. you have the, you have the guy from Yale that started all of this on your board. So, you know, yeah. kudos there. Great, great job. What, what are some of the, I, I guess, some of the, the new things that you might be looking at, you know, at, at, you know, bringing in is, are there any, are there any things on the horizon that you guys are, you know, working on to, you know, whether that be to, to broaden this out to more colleges or, or anything along those lines, any, any thoughts come to mind there? Yeah, lots of ideas. So we have to date worked primarily with smaller private colleges, your traditional college in a small town, private nonprofit four year school, right? And we have only worked with undergraduate programs, bachelor's degrees. So we are eager over the next couple of years to expand that in lots of ways. We just signed up our first regional public university and we expect we'll sign up a lot more public universities. Uh, we've had a lot of conversations with different schools about covering graduate degrees, mm -hmm. masters of social work or MBAs or you name it, right? Uh, we've talked to a number of law schools about covering their legal, their law programs. So I think in the next couple of years, we'll expand and cover a lot of different graduate programs. And as we've been talking about, we currently sell this through the college who gives it to the student. Mm -hmm. We'd like to like get to a structure where the student can pay for it as well and make that decision independently. So we expect we'll launch that in the next couple of years as well as we work on the back end and solve the, uh, the issues with the actuarial model on that. Yeah, and I, that's what I was wondering is even if you could approach high schools and and you know do some kind of a split model where you know the high schools you know have some type of a benefit to offering or this or letting the students know about it, which then the students can go and tell the colleges, hey, you know, why aren't you guys doing this? And then you know, kind of feed it from Absolutely. the other direction there, you know. Well, so. We've often had some of our sales team go to high schools, especially around some of our client colleges. And the high school guidance counselors are thrilled to hear about this, right? They love yeah. to have us talk to their students and share the word about that. So I think we'll definitely do more of that. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. What, what have been some of the biggest challenges that you've, that you've run into, you know, with, you know, growing this? I, I've, I've personally never called on any colleges or tried to sell to any colleges. Is it, right. is it difficult to get, you know, a foot in the door at any of these places or, you know, what's, what, what are your thoughts there? What, are, what have been some of the biggest challenges that you've, that you've run into? So it is a small community, right? There's only a couple thousand colleges in the U.S. It's not like we have millions of consumers or tens of thousands of small businesses. And, you know, the small number of prospective clients is a bit of a challenge. I think one of the most fundamental challenges is colleges operate on a once a year cycle. You know, generally they admit students and the students start in September. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes they start in January and some of the colleges are starting five and six and 12 times a year, but most colleges are operating on a once a year cycle. So if we introduce some new approach, if we change something, it's not like we're a restaurant where we get feedback tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Every night or every week or every month through the year, we're on that slow one year cycle. So that has made our progress feel really slow and sluggish sometimes, right? Yeah. And that's definitely been a challenge to overcome. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. That's very, very interesting. Do you do you ever do any type of like split tests or anything like that where you're you're you know you're testing one thing at you know one area or one college and then doing something different over at the other college out of curiosity? Absolutely. And, yeah. and as we get bigger, we do more and love to do split tests, especially in the work we do with students. So when a college offers this to students. They give us those names and we contact those students in order to make sure they're fully informed about what LRAP is and how it's going to help them. Mm -hmm. So we're definitely running split tests all the time about how do we best communicate this, right? Whether it's through email, phone calls, social media, however it is we're reaching out to them, uh, the team is running different tests in order to improve the effectiveness of that outreach. 
Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Th yeah, yeah, this is challenges as we got going. I launched this in 2008 and ran right into the Great Recession, right? Ah, yeah. And that was not a time to raise private equity money, right? There was no venture capital available. There was no private equity. I remember talking to a friend in New York City and he said, Peter, you don't get it. It's not that things aren't moving. It's no one's even taking meetings. Like yeah. no one's talking at all. And it was crazy. So because of that, we just started bootstrapping. It was me, myself for a while. And then I slowly started hiring people. And it's interesting when you read about startups, and I love to read about other startups and hear stories, but so much of what you read is about venture capital backed companies, right? And their pathway for growth is so different from what I've experienced bootstrapping, right? I mean, especially hiring. When I look at a venture capital backed company, they start out with a great idea and they hire a great team of senior executives. And those senior executives fill out the strategy and fill in the team as the volume of the business grows, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I started all by myself and I hired a part-timer at minimum wage and we slowly started hiring more people as the volume of the business demanded, right? Yeah. So I'm hiring looking backwards at what's my biggest pain point. I'm not hiring looking forward to the next opportunity. And the whole pathway is just so different. It's interesting and it's been a, a lot of fun, but that's definitely a challenge. Yeah, I've never, I've never really thought about that before. And do you have any type of insights into, I mean, there, there's going to be pros and cons to each one of them. I would imagine, you know, obviously being smaller and, and that you're obviously much more agile and you can kind of ebb and flow a little bit more and, and all of that. If you had taken this and, and gone the venture backed route where you, right. know, you went and got venture capital, do you think that you would be in a different, I'm sure you'd be in a different position, a better position than what you are right now? Or do you think that, uh, that the path that you took was, was the right path? You know, it was the path that was available. I think that in the best case, when a company takes venture money, they get explosive growth because they have all the resources and a big team right out of the gate, right? Yeah. And that's awesome. You read horror stories where they burn up all the money and they waste it because they don't really understand the business yet. Yeah. And I think this, you know, the path we've been on has let us grow slowly as we really understand the business. You also read horror stories about founders who end up with no, you know, almost no money at the end, even though there's a successful sale and the VC makes a lot of money. So I think either path is great and either path works fine they both have different hardships, right? So I've mentioned a couple of hardships and risks of the venture capital back model. When you're bootstrapping, you know, for a long time, we felt like we were walking on a uh, tightrope and yeah. we could fall off at any time and the business could just fall apart, right? Now I kind of feel like I'm walking on a big balance beam, you know, way better than a tightrope, but it, <laughs> it's not quite as stable as I'd like it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what would you think, what are the next steps to be able to make it, you know, stable? What are What are some of those next things? And not necessarily, I guess, more from a strategic standpoint, you know, what are some of those things that you're looking at? Right. You know, we need to get this in place. We need to get this in place. What, what are some of those th things that come to mind? Well, that's interesting. So one of the things is always just more working capital. You know, mm -hmm. I think a as any business grows, it increases its pool of working capital and that just gives you more stability. You've got mm -hmm. more ability to handle when you hit the pothole and you hit the flat tire, you've got more ability to pivot or take advantage of opportunities. So we're up to 50 employees now. And it feels like we're pretty robust, but certainly there's still things that could hit us and, you know, destroy us, right, overnight. Yeah. And you know, no business is immune from that altogether, but the bigger you get, the more you can handle, which is nice. And we're still working on the sales model. How do we most effectively make this work for colleges really efficiently for them? I think that in a sense, we have two products. We have the product that ultimately goes to the students, mm -hmm. and then we have how we deliver that through the college. The product for the students, I think, is quite refined and is really effective. 
we have some more work to do to make it a little easier for colleges. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. And, and what are some of the hurdles that the, the colleges have right now with, I mean, is it, is it just a messaging that, that they're having issues with? You know, or? right now when we sell to a college, we have a former VP of enrollment go sit down with their VP of enrollment. And it's really a consultative sale where one-on-one okay. -on -one they're talking about it. We haven't really reduced that to writing. You can't go to a website and do self-service. It'd yeah. be nice to take all the smartness that is in the brains of our salesmen, right? They're 20 years of experience as a VP of enrollment and put this down on a little automated algorithm, a little menu where anyone can come in and get self-service and answer three questions and get what they need, right? Yeah. But instead, yeah. it's a little of a back and forth interview that is, it's not quite as structured and quite as tight as reducing that to a simple algorithm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. And in part, that's because every college is facing a different set of issues every year, right? They, sure. Every college has its own strategic priorities. Every VP of enrollment has their own plan. And, and our program is really malleable that you can deploy it in lots of different ways for different needs for the enrollment needs of that college. So there is a really wide spectrum there. And the fact that the consultative sale makes sense, it slows down the scalability a little bit. So we're working on that. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Yeah, this is this is really really interesting. You've had to overcome a lot of different things that I've I've never really thought of before. So yeah, that is that is really really great. If if people want to learn more about you, your product, what would be the best way to be able to to reach out reach out and get in touch, or again learn more? Sure, of course. So go to uh, ardeoeducation.org is our website, and if people want to reach out to me personally, they can find me on LinkedIn and reach out to me personally there very easily. Yeah, love it. Well, Peter, this has been fantastic. Thank you for the work that you're doing because obviously you're you're grooming and helping the the, the youth of America here get uh, get a better education. So that helps all of us other entrepreneurs be able to have a, a better workforce. So, you know, thanks for for uh, grooming them and and uh, giving them the opportunity to be able to get a better education. And Matt, thank you for having me on the show. This is really fun. This is neat service you provide to tell stories of so many entrepreneurs because. When I was a, a new entrepreneur, it was great to see stories of other people and how it really works, that those stories are just so helpful to wrap your mind around what's going on. Yeah, no, it's, and it's been invaluable. You know, I've loved, I love, you know, all the connections and all the different stories that we've heard over the last year and a half or so. So yeah, again, thanks for, for being on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Nice to meet you. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.